0: Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Well, hello, hello, everyone. Hope you're having a great week. This episode concludes our two-part series on serious injury and fatality prevention, or SIFs, for National Safety Month. Last week, we heard Laurel and Russ Youngstrom share the impact and lessons learned from a serious workplace injury in their family. Their story was a sobering reminder that SIFs have devastating impacts on employees, families, and organizations, which is why our guest today is on a mission to take SIFs down to zero. Mark Jones is the EHS director at Plastipak, a leader in packaging and recycling with more than 50 sites worldwide. For Mark, the key to eliminating SIFs is creating a safety culture that embraces a capacity to fail safely. Let's get into the conversation. Hey, Mark, so great to see you. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Peter. Uh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. Can you tell us just a little bit about how you got into this line of work and your role at PlastiPack?
1: absolutely started off in the fire and EMS world almost 40 years ago and, you know, really liked to help people. So uh, I got an opportunity to work at Ford through a, a fellow volunteer firefighter and worked there 31 years. I left there as the corporate safety manager and probably about 20 years into my career, we were really challenged that the company had never gone a year without an occupational fatality. And we put together a joint labor management task force and we really took on addressing high-risk work, and that's what really gave me the passion to uh, foster this. I then left Ford, took the early buyout. I came to work at uh, Plastipac, uh, just a tremendous company, uh, a privately held uh, plastics and recycling company, great ownership. I worked directly for the COO, and the support for safety is just incredible. So I lead the environmental health and safety activities for about 50 locations, primarily uh, U.S. and Europe, little South America. Just a great opportunity and really enjoy it.
0: Well, when you implement an intervention program to reduce serious injuries and fatalities, how do you determine what the needs are and where to start?
1: At Plastipak, we really see it as this three-legged stool between safety, quality, and preventive maintenance and how important and integral those three are to successful plant operations. Unfortunately, in my career, I've investigated about 100-plus amputations and over 30 fatalities and unfortunately, there's many times this common theme, especially the amputations. I would comfortably say that 90% of the amputations are tied to equipment reliability. If the lines are not running well, people have to get in there to do things. They have to make adjustments, it means they're going to have to get dirty and you get in these, you know, awkward positions as well. And what promotes it is that because of needing frequent access because of the equipment reliability, it challenges people and unfortunately encourages them to take shortcuts. And generally, when you see those shortcuts, you can generally get away with them, or what we call normalization of deviation. You take that shortcut, you get away with it, and you suddenly get this drift, and that sort of becomes the new norm. But over time, something changes, something's different that day, and somebody's seriously injured. And, you know, I just completed about 15 hours of uh, interviews with maintenance personnel, and I just absolutely loved it. Because to me, it was absolutely getting on the floor and talking to them and understanding how they do their work and how the work actually happens on the floor. is not a bunch of safety people sitting in a room to come up with a new program, right? It's getting that sort of focus groups together and asking those leading questions to understand what's a normal day? How do things go well? But when things don't go well, what goes wrong and you know what they can learn from that as well.
0: Those conversations must have been pretty fascinating. I'll just tell you from personal experience, I'm at home, I'm working on something. I know I should put safety glasses on, but I'm like, ah, I don't need to do that. It's just a real quick cut I'm going to make with the chainsaw. Or how do you deal with that with people? How do you let them know that it's okay to stop and to put those glasses on and you should?
1: Yeah, for us, we have our safety top 10 rules, sort of our 10 commandments of safety. We basically said with these principles, they just have to be absolute. They have to be things that you have to do every time. And it really comes down to a sort of a cultural thing, meaning that there's this culture that it's the thing to do and to say that it's okay to take the time. It's okay to shut down the operation. I had the opportunity to do a benchmarking visit to a GE oil and gas years ago. And one of the most fascinating takeaways I had from them was they actually track the number of times that people stopped the job. And actually, it's a business metric for them from a safety standpoint, one of the things that they look at. So if there's too many, there's a problem. If there's too few, are people actually taking you know work serious? But when I say stopping the job, we don't mean that you put down your tools and walk away, right? We mean you just take the time, you pause, think, and analyze, right? I step back for a second. Within our own company, we use something that's sort of our motto for our safety. You know, department, we call it four seconds of safety. We want people to just take those couple seconds before they start a job just to think through it a bit. Again, pause, take a look, think through what could happen, and then analyze. How could I get hurt from this? What, will, you know, what would hurt me? What personal protective equipment do I need? Just to think through before diving in with two hands. Does that really puts yourself at risk.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're all impatient creatures, it seems like, for the most part. So I love that idea of four seconds to safety. That's fantastic. Well, when you investigate a serious injury, what are some of the questions you ask to get to the bottom of what caused the incident?
1: I think, first of all, your approach has to be one of you're there to learn and improve, not blame and punish. If your approach is blame and punish, you're going to suppress reporting. If you fix the process, the problem goes away. If you fix the employee, the problem is still there and it can happen again. We really need to remember that work is normally successful. Sometimes the difference between the serious injury and a near miss is one thing, it's luck. It's that outcome. So we need to be looking at sort of what has changed, how it changed. Remember what I said about normalization of deviation. It's what's been different from the way that process was initially established, I've learned I have to take the word why out of my vocabulary. When you ask the word why, it sort of has this accusatory effect versus it gives, it gives this aura of blame. Instead, using the word how, because how is more process It just is a softer way, but how is sort of looking at the way processes are set up, the way they're designed, what we can learn from that versus that accusatory why. I've also learned that it's rare, that it's the first time the job was ever done that way. Peter, as you mentioned, we're all creatures of habit. We're all creatures of efficiency. We're all going to find better, newer ways to do things that make ourselves more efficient and to make it easier for us. That's what we want. That's what ingenuity is all about, right? That's what entrepreneurship is all about. Workers on the floor are the same, they're doing the same things every day. If, in fact, somebody gets injured, you say, Bad employee, they got injured. If they find a better way or a safer way to do an operation, we're praising that. The only difference is outcome. So we really have to, you know, encourage that there's that freedom to report those things. So that's sort of the cultural things,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, based on everything you've said so far, it seems like it's really a top to bottom problem. This is not going to get solved by just issuing dictates from up on high. You've got to get employees involved. So how do you get employees directly involved in reducing SIFs?
1: So for us, we really encourage near-miss reporting as well as having safety conversations. I'm really proud to report this statistic. Amongst our you know, 6,500 employees, we had over 42,000 near-misses conversations last year from our associates. So our associates tell us what's going on. It's appreciated. It's expected. It's about positive recognition for the people that are bringing those forward and building those relationships so that it's a comfortable atmosphere and we encourage it. And really, safety is one of those business imperatives that transcends every other business metric. And I really think that's key and something that our company believes in wholeheartedly. If you really want to get deep in this, you need to really identify three things. One is, first of all, what are the job steps? What's the work that's going to be done? What's the hazards? What's the controls? Again, what's going to get done? by whom and why, what's the hazards that they're going to face, and what's the controls that we've put in place, and having deep dialogue amongst the team to go through that so that everybody understands that. And, And there's one other thing that I think gets missed and I think is really the most critically important. It's about what would stop the job and have that dialogue up front. What are those changing conditions that may happen? Let's say you're doing excavation work. Excavation work is doing fine, but then suddenly it rains that day, Right. That can change the whole dynamics of the stability of, of the earth that we're working around. And there's many other examples. We could take those inside the plant. And the other thing would be unexplained results, that if I press the button on that crane and that crane doesn't lift or something doesn't happen, I need to stop because something's going wrong. And unfortunately, I've seen some very, very serious injuries as well as fatalities where people continued to press buttons, mash things, and they were unfortunately hitting switches Causing cranes to fail, causing overhead lifts to get caught on structural steel, and then they suddenly release from, you know, that pressure. And recently, as, as amongst these 15 hours of interviews, I wrote down a line from two different employees, but I thought they were wonderful. The one guy says, if it doesn't fit, don't force it. And the second guy said, if it doesn't seem right, it probably isn't. Just, we need to stop. Things aren't right. We need to stop.
0: So critically important. Yeah, those are two huge things. And everything you just said really leads me back to the idea that safety is actually part of people's jobs, not just something they train on once a year or twice a year or think about once a week. Literally, if your job is to do one, two, and three, four is to do all those things safely. And just safety should be part of everything that you do. If you do it that way, you're going to dramatically reduce any kind of incidents, most likely.
1: Yeah, I mean, long ago, I had a director once use the term safe quality production. That's what we want at the end of the day. Again, if I do it right, I do it safely, they're going to have higher quality and the production will be there, right? We know at the end of the day, it's about making whatever that product is coming out the door, but it can be done safely and every other business metric will transcend if we keep safety first.
0: Now, something you referred to earlier and I did as well is like, we're impatient creatures. We just want to get the job done. Things haven't always been done this way. So is there a a mindset shift that just has to take place for a culture to change?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple things. First of all, we need to make sure that we're defining safety properly as well. Is safety the absence of accidents or is really the capacity to fail safely, right? What do we do to build in so that we've taken those issues out? How do we reduce complexity? How do we reduce variability? Because by adding additional procedures, it doesn't necessarily make the operation safer. It just means we've potentially added things that are more complicated, more steps to remember. In the heat of the battle, you're rushing, you're frustrated, there's a lot going on, there's production pressures. Adding more steps just adds to that complexity and variability. So again, how do we reduce that out of operations? I really think we need to build a culture of reporting. People need to be, it needs to be a safe space. It has to be valued. People need to know that we want them to report. It's encouraged and it's going to be addressed. It's really critical, too, that when people report incidents, we get back to them. For us, we use a bogey of 90% within 30 days. And even if it goes beyond that, we at least want to have the dialogue with the employees, because the worst thing you can do to lose credibility is that people report things, and they think it's going into a black hole. We occasionally see people that will send sort of these I wonder if anybody's reading these, right? We make sure they know. No, we are reading these. Thirty thousand of these a year, we're reading these things, and we're following up on them. I had a great example of this that I had a chance to go work the line here at a Plastipak. We had a site that was really busy during the cider season, making plastic milk jugs. So they said, "Does anybody want to come work the line?" I said, "I'll go work the line." Sure. So you know, I had people come over who I think they knew I was the corporate guy, so they'd say. There, can you come help me do a team lift? I'm like, this is rigged, this is staged, right? But I had some people who didn't know who I was, and I loved it, right? So I'm following the process. I'm supposed to build out this rack of bottles, and I'm, and I'm supposed to bag them. And then I'm supposed to scan it and create the label. I had this word come by. He said, why are you doing it that way? He said, let me show you the shortcuts, right? And he says, look, he says, you can scan these six ahead. He said, that way you can take a break and come back and then you just throw the tag on. And I just, I loved it. I loved it because I sit in my office every day, right? I come up with all these procedures, but you really have to get the people on the floor to understand how they're doing it. And as you had just mentioned, we're creatures of habit, right? We're creatures of finding efficiency and these people find ways to do it. With a lot of these serious injuries, there were precursors. There were telltale signs that were there. Were they reported? Were they not reported? Were they ignored? Hopefully not, but we really have to pay close attention to those somebody wears fall protection, you still fall when you wear fall protection, but it catches you, right? You fail safely. My best example of this was something that I didn't think was possible, Peter. When I was at Ford, we used power tools in the assembly of vehicles. And some of these had very, very high torque because you're building the body of a vehicle. And there's always a risk, we've all been told, when you use power tools, you don't wear gloves. But when you look at both the frequency and the severity standpoint, the frequency says, if I'm not wearing gloves, I'm potentially handling light oils, so I'm getting those on my hands. I might be getting dermatitis. I might be getting slivers. People are going to wear gloves or people want to wear gloves. But the concern is that if you're then wearing a glove and use this high torque power tool, and you know we did things like putting sleeves over our tools and everything we could on the shaft, but you still have that end where it's actually rotating that somebody could potentially get their finger caught there. So a guy that I worked with said, what do you think about creating tearaway gloves? I told him I thought he was crazy, right? I said, I don't know how you can even think something like like that works. He says, you want to bet your paycheck on it? And fortunately, I didn't. So he worked with a glove vendor and they created a glove that had threads on it around the base of the fingers. So that in the event that the employee's finger made contact with that tool, it would tear away the glove and not hurt somebody's finger. Unfortunately, we used to average about five serious hand injuries. And I mean very serious injuries. These are terrible, life-altering injuries a year when people would get their hands caught in power tools. Since Ford went to the tearaway gloves, that went to zero. They went from five disfiguring serious injuries a year down to zero by basically engineering it but engaging the associates to say, hey, we need to wear gloves and how do we provide a means to fail safely? And the tearaway a gloves Provides that means to
0: fail safely. Wow, that's a fantastic story. And it ties together what you said before, that you have to make people feel comfortable to report incidents, but also comfortable to share with you why they don't want to do the job the way you told them to, because they found a more efficient way. And then when you talk about it and you say, well, I get it, we still don't want you to wear gloves. You don't just stop there. You say, wait a minute, can we find a way to let you wear gloves? Because that's what you prefer to do. So I think that's just fantastic. That's the whole culture of safety.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the advanced strategies is actually something called the learning team, and that's getting associates together to just have a focused dialogue, but it's really about understanding what's their normal work. Remember, we're normally successful in what we do. We're normally successful well over 99% of the time. So understanding about normal work and how they're normally successful can help you then lead into what are those impediments? What are the issues? Again, what are the tough jobs that you have to do? What are the type of jobs that make you nervous? I think if you talk to any maintenance person, he'll tell you there's a job that he or she does not like doing for some reason. Maybe I get particularly dirty or I have to use a power tool or I have to get in this awkward position. And I don't like to do it there. Those are the type of things that, again, if you have that culture of trust and communication, and you can get the people together and have that type of dialogue. Learning teams are another strategy that can be really, really effective to get, our, to get employees together and talking so we can understand what's happening out in the site, out on the floor, and where people could get potentially seriously injured.
0: How frequently would you suggest having those learning teams get together? Is this like a weekly thing or a quarterly thing? I think
1: it needs to be based upon particular issues or problems that a site is having. So for us, we use something called a mold knife that trims a bottle as it's coming out of the press. And again, if you have frequent maintenance issues there, reliability issues, Unfortunately, it encourages people to go in there to have to get a bottle out that might be jammed. We want them to put that mold knife in every time. So we're going to have a learning team event to talk about, hey, what can we do differently? Do we need to make these more accessible to you? Do we need to engineer it differently? I don't know, but we're going to let our people help us solve that. Not just the engineers do it, but get the people on the floor who probably know the equipment better because they're doing it every
0: day. Well, that's really great. As you think about the listeners of this show, what do you recommend to other safety professionals to enhance their career?
1: So, well, I'm huge on professional certification, but not for the reason that many maybe promote it. You know, if you work for a consulting firm, I think the credentials probably look good. Maybe they can charge more. I don't know. When you're standing in front of OSHA or those regulatory agencies, having those professional certifications really means something. When you're professionally certified, you're bound by a set of professional ethics, and you're held accountable to those. And I think that means a lot. I think it means a lot to, you know, the companies that have people that are certified as well as to those regulatory agencies. But the other thing which I think is most important is, to me, getting professionally certified is sort of that liberal arts degree of safety. When you go through a liberal arts program, you take classes on all sorts of different stuff from music to art to things that allows you to talk to people, right? I'd say the same thing about professional certification for safety. To get professionally certified, you have to learn a little about a lot, right? You have to learn about engineering. You have to learn about physics. You have to learn about chemistry. You have to learn about radiation. You have to learn about industrial hygiene and ergonomics and all these different things. You learn a little about a lot so that you have some knowledge of each of those subject matters. So my story here is that I was working for an insurance company just out of college. And we had a contractor that we insured, and this contractor was doing work in a power plant, a nuclear power plant. Why they ever let me in the door, I don't know, but they let me in the door. Here's this young insurance guy, probably 23 years old, and I asked about their radiation safety program. So at the time, I was studying for my professional certification, so I knew just a thimble about radiation safety. So they said, okay, you want to learn about radiation safety, we'll take you down the hallway to meet the health physicists." But I want to let you know he's not a very friendly person. So I so I went in to meet this fella. And uh, he started off a bit, you know, roughing and rough. And he said, I you know, I hear you want to know about you know radiation safety. I said, Yeah. And he said, Well, what do you want to know? And I said, Well, what's the typical millirem of exposure of somebody working on the site? He stopped me and he said, The what? I said, the millirem, but then I got nervous, like, did I have the wrong unit? I just I was just studying this stuff. He said, I've never had Anybody asking about the millirem exposure, he said, I'll teach you anything you want to know. And this guy spent about 45 minutes with me teaching me a semester worth of radiation safety just because I could speak his language and knew what a millirem is. So, again, I would say that that transcends to every other aspect, whether you want to talk to finance people, whether you talk about tar rates and everything else, you really need to learn the business and you need to be able to have that dialogue. So if you're talking to engineering or leadership or finance or HR, knowing the right terms to ask really establishes that relationship and that rapport. That means you know enough that, hey, let's have further dialogue. And even saying that, hey, I don't know much. This is all I know. It opens the door for people to give you a lot more information when they know that you're showing a genuine and sincere interest in the area that's their professional expertise.
0: Absolutely. That's a great story. Well, Mark, thanks again for joining us and helping us close out our series on serious injury and fatality prevention for National Safety Month. I really enjoyed hearing what you talked about today. It's that concept of capacity to fail safely. I think that's an amazing concept.
1: Thank you, Peter. I really enjoyed it and happy to share. Again, safety is a team sport. Nobody has all of the right answers and we as a safety community have to get better and work together especially in the reduction of serious injuries
0: and fatalities. Well said. Well, thanks for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To stay in touch with Mark and to learn about his work at Plastipac, check the links in the show notes. You can also subscribe to get next week's episode delivered straight to your inbox. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.